Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study your word. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts to be like you. May you bless those around the world who are sharing this message about you, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And be sure and check the notes out for all the other announcements and upcoming dates and events which are in our notes. So today's uh, lesson, we're doing lesson number 12, and the title is The Humility of the Wise. And the memory text is Matthew 5.3, and it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be discouraged? Oh, humble. Okay, good. Humble. So what is, what is humility? What is the definition of, of humble? And I looked it up in the dictionary. So I'll read you some definitions, and you guys tell me which one of these apply to biblical humility, to be humble in the Bible sense. The first one, definition number one, not proud or arrogant, to be modest. Yeah? Okay. Second, having a feeling of insignificance, inferiority, and subservience. No. Okay. Um, third, low in rank, low in importance and status and quality. No. Good. I'm glad you guys recognize this. This is good. Good. Um, courteous, courte, courteously respectful. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this one's funny to me. Um, low in height, small in size. <laughs> that one doesn't apply. Okay. So the, the primary definition, I think you guys got that, and it's about character and about how we treat each other. The lesson points out the virtue of humility. Why is humility a virtue? What, what does it provide for us if we, if we are humble? We're workable. Oh, I like... Did you, yes, workable, teachable. This is the big thing. We're finite beings. To be humble means we're open to the fact that we don't know everything. We're open to learn, open to grow, open to develop, open to new ideas. Open to be corrected and, and instructed. What's the difference between being humble and being insecure, fearful, having low self-esteem, and allowing people to walk all over you? That's a lot of it. A lot of it. There's no comparison. If you're that way, you're thinking about yourself instead of thinking outward. Do you know that this idea that I just described of of low self-esteem, being insecure, having little confidence, is often uh, thought to be humble? What about when it says, turn the other cheek? Yes, what about that? Does that apply to all circumstances? If a child is having a temper tantrum and a child strikes out at their parent, should the parent let the child continue to hit them? Is is that what that's applying to? No. No, no, it's not. So turning the other cheek, is that that meaning that a, a, a woman who is being beaten by her husband should simply continue to allow herself to be beaten? No. Is that what it's talking about? Why or why not? How do you understand God's law? Design law or imposed law? So what happens to a person, any person, when they deviate from God's law, we call that sin. What happens to them? If you lie, if you cheat, if you commit adultery, if you commit any deviation from the law of love, what happens to you? Pardon? Well, ultimately it ends up in death. But before it ends up in death, there's a process, right? 
Do you have more peace? No. Do you get? Do you warp your character, sear your conscience, all, uh, damage your reasoning abilities? So a man who beats his wife, what's happening to his character? Yes. Um, I just want to take the. I don't want to digress, but I was reading the bulletin at uh, church the other day, and it said the church was having a seminar for uh, women who had been abused or beaten or whatever. And uh, I immediately went to the internet and found that the statistics show that men are just as likely, if not greater, to be physically or emotionally abused by women. And I just wonder why this is never addressed, why it's always the women that are being battered and abused and never the Seriously. No, actually, in, 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 our, in our presentation, and I will be dealing with this in our talk in two weeks, the data is in Christian homes, uh, and, and we presented this in, I think it's in the God in Your Brain DVD, this, this data is in there, that uh, a woman who marries a Christian man versus a non-Christian man is just as likely to be physically abused if she's with a Christian man or a non-Christian man. There's no difference. If a man marries a Christian woman, uh, the likelihood of being abused is about three times less for a woman to be, for a man to be abused by his wife. So the, nu- the raw numbers, women are abused more frequently than men are. In a Christian home. The total number are a man is three times less likely to be abused than a woman is in, in an intimate relationship. However, if a man marries a Christian woman versus a non-Christian woman, his likelihood of being abused is three times more if he marries a Christian woman than a non-Christian woman. Okay? That's what the data shows. Somebody just commented, it's the self-righteous nature. And in my, in, in the DVD, if you want to look at the reasons, I actually go through the reasons in the DVD, the second lecture in the God in Your Brain DVD called Designer or Dictator, and I explore the neuroplasticity and the law of worship by beholding we become changed. And we actually become like the God we worship. And if you worship an authoritarian dictator control imperialistic God, then you begin practicing those methods. And so this is what drives so much um, dominance and control in family relationships. Child abuse rates no different in Christian homes and non-Christian homes and so forth and so on. Um, Yes, exactly. So the question, back to the humility question though. Humility is not the same thing as having no confidence, no uh, low self-esteem, having no sense of self-worth. Humility is actually, as I understand, the primary issue of humility is an other-centered orientation to living where you're concerned and you love other people more than you love yourself. That doesn't mean you don't love yourself. That means you're concerned with their welfare. So a humble wife who's being beaten is thinking through the law of lens, my husband's destroying a soul. He's warping his character. He's searing his conscience. If I do nothing and don't confront this behavior, I'm just colluding with his eternal destruction. And I'm humble enough to uh, confront him not in an arrogant way, how dare you treat me this way, but hey, I love you and you're destroying your soul. You've got issues. Let's, Let's work on those. But we don't allow it to go on. The insecure person, I deserve this, I'm rotten, I'm no good, he had every right to hit me, and so forth, which is actually colluding with a lie. You had your hand up, Wendell. I won't get this right, but um, someone said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. I like that too. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Yes, which means thinking of others more. Right. Yeah, it's very well said. Yes. Uh, lately we've been thinking a lot about ISIS and how Christians would deal with this. What do you think? Well, it depends on whether you're talking about an individual person or whether you're talking about political policies for states. States are described in Scripture as beasts. That's what they're always represented as, as beasts. Beasts use coercive tactics. 
So states, if you're, if you're talking about what should our state do, what should our nations do in dealing with this, nations will use coercive practices. That's what nations always do. That's what they will do. Is that the same thing as what you as an individual should do? And so you look at what happened with 2,000 years ago. Do you think what ISIS is doing is worse than what Nero and the Romans were doing to Christians? Yes or no? No. And, and, how, and how did the Christians respond then? That's exactly what they did. They trusted God with their lives. They did not pick up the sword. Jesus said, if you pick up the sword, you die by the sword. They did not go to war with Rome. They didn't try to get the right senators elected. They didn't try to get the right judges in place. They actually tried to love people. And what happened was, as they continued to demonstrate this character of love, and they were being killed, did it extinguish Christianity? Or did Christianity actually grow exponentially? Because, it, because those who were, were unsettled into one of the two camps saw the contrast in the evil hatred, um, vindictiveness of the, of, the, of the people persecuting and, and killing the Christians at the stake and the, and the joy and the love and the grace and the forgiveness. Um, Stephen, what did he pray? Don't hold this against their account. And what do we find? Paul was convicted and ultimately that was a thorn in his mind that ultimately led to his conversion. So what is our response? I think to love them like Jesus did. And, and I'm going to say it's not natural. Our natural heart wants to punish them. Our natural heart wants to kill them. Does it not? And that shows how infected we are because that's not what Christ would do. And one way to help you transition that is just, just to think about what you would do if one of those people was your teenage son who got sucked into a cult. Remember Branch Davidians? Remember those guys? Okay. And your teenage son got sucked into one of these cults and he's out there now believing this radical stuff. What would your attitude be towards your son? You want to go kill him? No. You want to save him. You want to deliver him. You want to free him. Would you give your life to free your son? Hmm. I found these quotes interesting this week on the issue of humility. I was reading and, you know, I do research uh, when I prepare the class. This is the first one's out of Christ's Object Lessons 363. It says, the spirit, of slothful, the spirit of the slothful servant, we are often fain to call humility. In other words, we frequently call humility. But true humility is widely different. To be clothed with humility does not mean we are to be dwarfs in intellect, deficient in aspiration, and cowardly in our lives, shunning burdens lest we fail to carry them successfully. Real humility fulfills God's purposes by depending upon his strength. I love that. Dwarfs in intellect. (laughs) No, that's not humility. Here's another one. Christian Education 243. And why should not a man thus privileged become intellectually strong? Again and again have worldlings sneeringly asserted that those who believe present truth are weak-minded, deficient in education, without position or influence. This we know to be untrue, but is there not some reason for these assertions? Many have considered it a mark of humility to be ignorant and uncultivated. Such persons are deceived as to what constitutes constitutes true humility and Christian meekness. I love this. This is so good. Okay. And then uh, 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 CET 74, it says, a Christian reveals true humility by showing the gentleness of Christ, by being always ready to help others, by speaking kind words and performing unselfish acts. 
Again, that concern for others. This is what real humility is. Desire of Ages 535. Skepticism and unbelief are not humility. Implicit belief in Christ's word is true humility, true self-surrender. What do you think of that one? Pause on that one. Implicit belief in Christ's words. What does it mean to have implicit belief in, in, in the scripture, in Christ's words? Does it mean God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We don't think, we don't ask questions, we just believe it. Is that what it means? No, that's not what it means. Some would take the quote like that and say, yes, you, we, are, we can't ever under, God's ways aren't my ways, his ways are higher than mine, we can't comprehend, we can't understand, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, don't ask questions, don't think. We, that's humble. If you're thinking, you're arrogant, you think you can understand what the Bible says, you're just agreed to me, you're a fallen sinner, how dare you think you can think? Don't you hear this sometimes? Yes, and it shuts down. God says, oh, I said, well, if you take the scriptures' word, then Isaiah, come let us reason together. God is inviting me to reason. Jesus called his, his apostles friends because he doesn't want them to be slaves because slaves don't understand. They just do what they're told. God said it. I believe that settles it. Master said, jump, I jump. I don't have to ask why. I don't have to understand anything. Just do it. But Jesus said, I don't want that. I want you to understand. Paul says every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Yeah. Don't you think that this is a or the end product of denominationalism? In any form, Methodist, Baptist, Adventist, it causes weak people that just accept the status quo. They don't ever question. I remember coming to my parents when I was 20, 21 years old and had just been introduced to, the, to studying Daniel and Revelation for myself. Well, it didn't take me long to find some glaring problems with some of these things. And the first thing my dad said to me, I mean, I was a newly born again Christian. I was on fire. I was discovering my own brain. I was just absolutely fired up. And my dad looked at me and said, you're on your way out. Oh. <laughs> yes, this is, I see this all the time. Rushed. I see this all the time. I was yes. crushed. I see this, I see this. And, and, and if you actually understand the underlying motive for those who say these things, Fear. Fear. There you go. That's exit. Fear. It's not love. Perfect love casts out all fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. afraid. This is fear-based mentality. It's fear-based theology. It's not, it's antithetical to a, a theology of love. Yes. And that theology is why most of us were parented the way we were, which is the, do, I'll tell you how, how, how high to jump. Don't question it. Anything said? Because if you have that theology, don't you think that's the way life is supposed to function, period? Yeah, that's what they think, exactly. It's just a system of rules. If you have that imposed system of rules, you jump, don't ask. It's obedience. If you don't jump, if you're asking questions, you're being disobedient, you're being arrogant, you, you think you know better than the one in charge. How dare you question the one in charge? But that's not what God wants. He wants us to actually be understanding friends. Is there a difference between friendly service and a serving friend. Which do you think God wants? See, the, the, the people who promote this fear, they, they all talk about service. We're to serve, we're to obey. But the kind of service God wants is not friendly service. He wants friends who understand his business and lovingly, willingly, eagerly participate. A slave can provide friendly servant. Right. Exactly. This is how to lift him up, page 282. The precious grace of humility is sadly wanting in the ministry and the church. Men who preach the truth think too highly of their own abilities. 
True humility will lead a man to exalt Christ and the truth and to realize his utter dependence upon God and the truth. It is painful to learn lessons of humility, yet nothing is more beneficial in the end. The pain attendant, I like this, the pain attendant, the pain attendant upon uh, learning lessons of humility is in consequence of our being elated by false estimate of ourselves. In other words, the more highly you think of yourself, the more it's going to hurt when you realize you're not all that. It's going to hurt. Sometimes I have to let my patients, you know, they, they, uh, I have a lot of patients, and there's two sense, there's two sides of this pride, arrogance, self-exaltation side. The one, in, in psychiatry terms, they call this narcissism. And there's the Kernbergian narcissist, Kernberg, and the Kernbergian narcissist is the arrogant, over-elated, walks in, everybody should stop because I've walked in now, everybody should move out of the way when I come to the checkout line because I'm so important, everybody should recognize me. This is the Kernbergian narcissist. But there's the Kohushian narcissist, Kohut. And Kohut describes the other narcissist, and that is the one who has so low self-esteem, so lack of confidence, that they would never think anyone would ever notice them. And so, and, and, and so when they're walking in the mall and by themselves and two people they don't know walk by and those two people just happen to giggle as they walk by, in their mind they go, they're laughing at me. It must be my sweater they're laughing at. <laughs> Everybody's thinking about me. Nobody likes me. I can't go to the mall because they're all talking about me. And so it's just the opposite. The same coin. One is the arrogant side. So I'm so wonderful. The other is I'm so low. But you notice both of them have self at the center. Everybody's talking about me. Everybody's thinking about me. Everybody's critical of me. Everybody's finding fault with me. I'm so low. I'm so, they're going to laugh at me if I go out there. And I have to tell these people, I don't, the, the, the arrogant narcissist who's so wonderful rarely ever comes to, to psychiatrists. They're, they're too good. They don't need to. They're wonderful. <laughs> but the, the, the insecure, fear one that's so low, they're so miserable, they, they often come. And I have to, at one point, sometime in the, in the, in the therapy, enlighten them. You, you know something? You're really not that important to everyone. <laughs> seriously when you walk into walmart everybody is not you're not so important that everybody's stopping what they're doing to look at you and it's a shock really they actually ha- they have this such insecurity that they actually think when they walk in they they feel like everyone's looking at them no really those people have other stuff in their lives they're not that important to them and that actually is hurtful. See, part of the reason they think this is because they want to be important, but they're wanting to be important in a very negative way, putting self in the center. So, Sunday's lesson. It says, who do you think you are? Lesson title. Who do you think you are? How do you answer this question? Have you heard of people describe the answer and read in maybe Christian documents that degrade and demean themselves. We're sinners. We're so low. We're so debased. Um, have you heard of worm theology? I put the reference in here. You can look it up in the internet. Worm theology comes probably from Psalms 22.6. But I am a worm and not a man. I'm a lowly worm. This is out of uh, a, a brief description out of Wikipedia, and I've got the, the link here if you want to get it out of the notes. Worm theology is a term for the conviction in Christian culture that in light of God's holiness and power and appropriate emo- and a, an appropriate emotion is a low view of self. Some might suggest that because of his v- this view, God is more likely to show mercy and compassion if we think and abase ourselves as lowly worms. This, uh, the name may be attributed to a line in Isaac Watts' hymn, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, uh, written in 1707, which says, Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? 
Uh, yeah, some of you know this song, yes. First, the hymnal doesn't have those words, by the way. The, the, the new one doesn't have those words? They, they've changed it, huh? Such a one as I. Such a one as I. They, they changed it to such a one as I. Yeah. <laughs> Furthermore, worm theology can be attributed to a recognition of the ugliness of sin resulting in contrition. Some might suggest adherents of worm theology have inner wounds that they are not necessarily aware of, and such a belief just matches what they feel about themselves and sometimes others. On the other hand, God detests sin so much because it separates us from him, it could then be argued that in our sin, we are as worms in God's sight. (laughs) And this is from C.S. Lewis out of the book Mere Christianity, page 124. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good good above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God but by the devil. The real test of being in, in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. What do you think? He doesn't look at us as a worm. He looks at the sin. But not at us. So how would you answer the question? Who do you think you are? Child of God. I was going to say a child of God. God. If our children uh, make a mistake, do we say they're worms and no good? Or did they make a mistake and they're still our children? Okay. Other thoughts? Somebody valuable enough to come and die for. Someone valuable enough to come and die for. Yes. What do you think Paul meant then when he said he was the worst of sinners or the chief of sinners? Yeah, that was actually quoted in, in the Wikipedia. I skipped that too. So what do you think? I, you know, what, or what a wretched man am I who would save me from this body of death? Did you want to comment on that, Wendell? Well, also the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. You know, the, and in the discussion of that parable, he says that this is about those who believe that they are righteous. And so it's not about self-worth. It's about whether you're... Yes, so who do you think you are? See, I hear, Paul, again, which lens are you looking through? Are you looking through the judicial lens? Are you looking through design law lens? I hear Paul saying, I'm a child of God, however, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. I have a terminal condition with which I did not choose to participate, but with which I was born. This condition corrupts me. Oh, what a wretched man am I. The things I want to do, my new heart, I've got a new desire, new motives because I've been reborn. Those are the things I want to do, but I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a corrupt condition. And sometimes I find myself doing things I, I really don't want to do. It stinks. Predisposed. Vulnerable, conditioned responses, old habit patterns, neural circuitry that hasn't been re- rewritten yet. Leads me to do things reflexively that I don't want to do. So, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, defective from birth, terminal in selfishness and fear yet loved by God so much that he sent his son to provide remedy, to deliver me and cure me from this condition. So though born defective and terminal, I accept and partake of what Jesus has procured and have a new heart with new desires to every day be more and more like Christ, acutely aware of how much more healing I need. Mm -hmm. That's how I answer that question. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to feel guilty about having this condition and this is one of the, the worm theology really messes up. We should feel bad for being this way. No, we shouldn't. 
Any more than a baby born to HIV-infected parents being born HIV-infected, what did the baby do wrong? Nothing. The baby shouldn't feel bad they were born this way. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. It's not our fault. But there's a free remedy offered to us. If we reject the remedy, I don't want to participate with that, then we can be responsible for that and feel bad for rejecting healing and restoration. And with that, those words in mind, healing and restoration, let's jump to Friday's lesson and look at question number one. This is question number one from Friday's lesson. Dwell on the plan of, and I really think about what's being said here. Dwell on the plan of salvation and what was required to save us. That is, we are so fallen, so corrupt, so evil, that mere regeneration would not be enough to redeem us from sin. No matter how much we are changed and restored, that regeneration and restoration cannot save us. We need a substitute, someone who legally stands in our place and whose righteousness alone is enough to make us right with God. What should this reality itself tell us about why arrogance and pride have to be some of the worst sins in in falling beings like us? Yes, Wendell. So, when you go to the physician to be healed, does he need a legal document to say that he can make you well? It goes back to the question of what went wrong with sin. Exactly. So let's, let's, let's parse that. When Adam sinned in Eden, did God get changed? No. Did God's law get changed? No. Yes, no? No. no? Did mankind, the condition of Adam, get changed? Yes. So if, if mankind is to be restored at one, restored to, to, to life eternal... Does something have to be done to God, who was never changed? No. To God's law, who was never changed? Or does something actually have to be done in man to restore or reset him yeah. back to God's design? Yes, this is where the action is. So how we describe the mission of Christ, its action point has to be in man. If it's not in man, then man is still deviant from God's design. That's where the brokenness happened, in us. I, I agree with that. You notice, though, with this statement, this statement reveals a mindset of the author who wrote it. What law lens do you think they're looking through? The type of law that created beings make. It takes God off his throne. It really demeans him. He is the creator who builds the fabric of the cosmos. His laws are the protocols by which reality operate, like the laws of health, laws of gravity, the moral laws of relationships and worship and so forth and so on. We can't do any of that. We can't make reality. So we make up rules, and we enforce them with threats and punishments. That's what they're describing God as doing. He makes up rules. He's got to punish. They call it reality. It's not reality. It's fantasy. Reality actually does not work this way. It's a false paradigm. This week I was listening to Christian radio, and uh, I've got the reference in the... um, where you can find it online if you want to go find it in the notes. But it was a talk show in which they had a, a, a theologian on from a, a Bible institute talking about how we need to teach our children Bible truth and how we should, should preach and teach to our children. And I'm going to read you some of what that dialogue, from that dialogue. This is uh, verbatim. I, I, I transcribed it. It says, Even for little children, hell might upset them. Satan and demons might upset them. And we don't want to upset kids uh, one upset them, so we've watered down the gospel. You know, it comes down to this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and, and part of that plan is 
for you to know Jesus and to invite him into your heart. And if you do, and if you don't, he might be separated from God from all eternity. So accept Jesus into your heart and he will love you. And there you go. Life turns out great. And then you get to go to heaven. There might be some remnants of truth in that. <laughs> Think that through. I think we're actually manipulating children by not sharing them the full truth. Jesus did not die on the cross just because I don't want to be separated from God. He died on the cross because somebody had to be violently. There had to be a bloody sacrifice for the sin that I had committed because my sin is so heinous against the holy God. And the cross is a bloody, violent picture of how horrible our sin is. Now, while we don't want to go into too much detail when they're young, we have uh, to let them know that when Christ died on the cross, it was a punishment. And if Christ doesn't take the punishment, then we have to be punished. And I will be punished in a place called hell. The host then responds. Well, there are adults, perhaps listening right now, who discount the idea of the wrath of God. You're painting a picture of a vengeful, sadistic, violent God who is taking it out on his son instead of taking it out on you and me, and that just is not the God of the Bible. And this person continues. If I was sarcastic, I would say the Bible, uh, I would say, what Bible are you reading? But I don't want to be sarcastic, so I won't say that. (laughs) So what I'll say is, let's... So let, let, so what I'll say is, let's not go from one end of the pendulum to the other. One end of the pendulum is we only talk about the vengeance and wrath of God, which is required, which is required because of his justice. The other extreme is we only talk about the love of God. I'll even say that when it comes to the love of God, we've redefined hell to say something like, well, hell is where you're separated from God. My question is, separated from what? If God is omnipresent, he is everywhere, including hell. And hell serves a purpose in the bigger universe and for God. So what are we separated from? I'm separated from his love and mercy and kindness, but I am also separated from God when I go to heaven because I'm separated from his condemnation and from the wrath I deserve. I'm going to pause right here. Do you hear the God they're describing? In this God, where's the source of condemnation, of wrath, of of punishment, of of, of vengeance, of death, of destruction? Where's the source? It's coming from God, you see? He's a two-faced God. This is dualism. This is Eastern philosophy, that good and evil exist for eternity in balance. This is dualism. And this is taught in Christianity in the heart of God. And this is why the typical penal theologies can't resolve it because dualism leads to fear and insecurity. I live in fear in a universe where there's a God who's got an evil side and if I step out of line, he's going to kill me. That's the core of an abusive relationship. And this is why, it is. And this is why so much Christianity is now turning to Eastern mysticism with Christian labels. Because they're trying to calm their, themselves down because traditional... Theology, penal theology, doesn't resolve this. It's actually teaching a very ugly God. Let's keep going. After we die, we are separated from God in a sense. The question is, what are you separated from? Go ahead and tell the children the truth. And as they get older, you can go into more and more detail. But when they are young, you to say where there to say there is a God who created you, and because He created you, <coughs> He owns you. You owe him your allegiance because he is worthy. He is your master. He created you. And when you do not think, excuse me, excuse me. Yeah. And when you do not think, live, feel, behave in such a way that gives him the glory and honor for he is deserving of that, it is called sin. It is cosmic treason. 
And when you sin, God must, because of his holy sovereign justice, punish you. And either we get in trouble and we take the punishment or someone has to do it for us. And God, out of his great love for us, came as man and lived a perfect life and died the perfect death and rose again as conqueror to sin and death. And in knowing that and accepting that uh, Christ as God was our punishment, paid that penalty. And when I repent and receive Christ as the substitutionary atonement, then I enter into relationship with God that lasts the rest of my life and for eternity. But the moment I accept Christ into my life, I actually enter into cosmic battle because I enter spiritual warfare. I go as a warrior to my king. I'm not going to Walt Disney World and vacation the rest of my life. So what pictures are we giving the children of God who is worthy of our allegiance and himself paid a violent sacrifice for our debt? We water everything down through the moralistic lens to protect children from something they don't really need to be protected from. Do you want to teach your kids this, God? This is, I'm telling you... The, the, the red DVD out here, God in your brain, as I gave many examples from, all, from a wide variety of denominations, this is an infection. This is what God was speaking of through the Apostle Paul when after Christ's victory, Paul says in Thessalonians that the man of sin will arise. He will oppose and set himself up, up, up against everything that is, is godly and set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple is that? This is right here. And this is what happened. Christianity accepted this imperial dictator view of God and the world went into an age of darkness. A serious age of darkness. Coercive pressure, control, and and Christianity is still trying to dig out from under it. And our own church is weighted down with this infection. That's why we haven't been able to finish the mission to lighten the world for Christ's coming. Because he's waiting for a people to present the truth about him His true fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judicial, uh, you know, tribunal in heaven is set. No, this is how it's taught for this this lie, this this legal law lens. No, the hour in which His true character is to be revealed, so people can conclude rightly that God is in this way. The hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth. Worship the Designer, the one who's created everything. So, so saw hand there. Just like I had a discussion like that exactly with someone, and they, when this person asked, well, what Bible are you reading from? This other person exactly told me that. He said, well, the Bible uses all these terms, propitiation, atonement, um, I don't know what other terms, but the Bible itself uses those terms. Only if you're reading certain English versions. This person said that the original uses these terms. No, it doesn't. We get to heaven and, and you get to have a sit down in, in heaven with Paul and say, Paul, you know something? I just want to talk to you about your letter to the Romans. Uh, what is this word propitiation? What were you talking about there? Paul's going to go, I don't know what word you mean. I've never used that word. <laughs> because that word is a Latin-based word. Paul was writing in Greek. And the word he used was hilasterion. And hilasterion is the same word for the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. That's the exact same word in Greek for the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. Hilasterion. And it's translated by Luther, Gernatischstuhl, which is, um, into English, mercy seat. But some translations make it the atonement cover or the propitiation. It actually simply means... Christ was presented as the way and means of reconciliation, bringing humankind back into harmony and oneness with God. 
That's what propitiation rightly means. But if you are already coming to it with a pre-biased preset that God's law is operationally like human laws, a system of rules that requires external enforcement, then you read these words through this penal theory and you come up with a distorted imperialistic God construct. When you understand God as creator and you read these words, you understand that he's restoring, recreating, regenerating exactly what the lesson says is not happening. And do you understand it's even worse than this? Is that atonement then? Atonement. At, atonement actually means at-one-ment. If you actually go back to when the King James Bible was translated in 1611, uh, this is the first use of the word atone, because the Greek and Hebrew don't use that word. It's an tr- English word. And the English word atone um, actually means, there used to be a verb, O-N-E. We use that as a number, a noun, one. But it used to be in 1611, it was a verb, to one. So if you had two people that were odds with each other, you would say, I'm going to go one them. It's an action word. I'm going to bring the two that are split back into one, back in 1611. And it quickly became at one. And we don't say at one because it's the old English pronunciation. If, you ha- if you're all by yourself, are you all one or are you alone? You're alone. And so we don't at one, we atone. Okay? This is why this happens this way. And so the atone or the atonement means to take two parties that are separate or split and bring them back into unity or oneness. Okay? And I have the Oxford English Dictionary at home, which is 22 volumes long, and I've got the history right there marked in it, and they actually document everything I'm telling you is the, is the accurate truth of the history of this word. But the word changed over time. From 1611, when the Bible was translated atone, when it meant we're going to at one bring people into unity, that word changed, just like the word gay changed. If you had a letter from your great-grandfather from World War I and he was in England and say, I'm over here with Joe and we're having a gay time. Would you be concerned about his uh, you know, relationships? Okay? But if somebody said that today, we're all gay over here. <laughs> you might be concerned today, right? The word has changed. And that's what happens. The word atone, atonement, has changed meanings in the common vernacular. And people hear it under a penalistic, legalistic construct. It was never intended in Scripture. So when people say, well, that's what the Bible says, that's not what it means. That Those words are English words that have legal connotations that were never in the original manuscripts. And even worse, if you actually read it with the mindset of 1611, 1615, and so forth, you would still get the right meaning because it meant something different than it does today. And if anyone questions word changes like that, it happens in all of our lifetimes. And our growing up, our youth camp was called Camp Cumbie Gay. Yes, Camp Cumbie Gay. I actually put that in my book. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Camp Cumbie Gay. We have, why did the conference change the name of that? <laughs> How many Christian parents want to send their kids to a camp called Camp Cumbie Gay? <laughs> okay, they had to change the name. Okay. Because this, this imperialistic legal law lens this is, is not only an infection. This is what Paul was referring to in Timothy when he said, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. This imperialistic legal theology is powerless to transform lives. It holds people captive in a false legal system. Now, you may, and, and denominations fight amongst themselves between what is the right legal requirements. Do I need to go to the church and have the sacraments done? Do I need to have confession with the priest? Do I need to take the right bread and the right wine? Do I need to say so many Hail Marys? Do I need to get my foot washed every 13 weeks? Do I need to do, I need to do this? Do I need to accept the blood payment? In other words, 
functionally, these systems are no different. They're legal systems. We're in legal trouble. You have to have a legal solution to get out of legal trouble with a, a dictator God. The only difference they argue among is what's the proper legal solution. And there's no power. It's powerless to transform lives. So why did Christ die? And we're going to go into great detail in our seminar. I'm actually going to walk people through in detail why Christ died and what he achieved. But bottom line, he died because Adam changed the condition and nature of human species to be deviant from God's design. Dying, they will die. They're in a terminal condition. He died to fix that condition. Why was it necessary? Because what is it that life is based upon? Where, okay, where does life originate? Where? God. God. That's exactly right. Life originates in God. It flows out to whom? His creation. Un- unrestricted flow of life to whom? Unrestricted flow of life to whom? No, not quite. Unrestricted. Okay, if, if th- think through your mind. Eden, prior to sin. Prior to sin, was there some difference in the way Adam and Eve were connected to God prior to sin than after sin? Yes. What was the difference? Face to face. Yes. And what kind of clothing did Adam and Eve wear prior to sin? Light. They were radiating light. Okay. Why were they radiating light? They had Energizer Bunny batteries on them or what? Reflecting from God. Where was that light energy originating? And who was it flowing through? As soon as they sinned, what happened to that light energy? It was shut up because God was being mean? Or because their sin changed their condition and caused a disconnect in their relation with God. God still loved them. God was still wanting to reconnect with them, but their condition no longer allowed his full life energy to flow through them. Whole creation is now starting to deteriorate. This is what he means, dying you will die. So life originates in God, flows through unrestricted, only beings who are in perfect unity with him. After Adam sinned, there's no human being in that condition. None. Christ came to fix that condition, to write the law of love back into the human species, or to say it this way, to develop a perfect human character. It says in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, and 10, that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews 5, 9, and 10. Once he was made perfect? Wait a second. Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. Perfection in Scripture is about maturity. Once he was made perfect is about developing mature Christian Christ-like character. Character cannot be created. Character has to be developed by the exercise of the choices of the free will and sentient being. Y'all following me on this? Mm -hmm. Hebrews also says he learned obedience by what he suffered. That's right. So... Having made this as Christ came, and in his humanity, the two antagonistic principles warded out in the brain of Jesus Christ. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2.14. James chapter 1, we are tempted when we're drug away by our own evil desires. Did Christ, are both those scriptures true? Then look at Gethsemane. Christ's humanity, he experienced powerful human emotions that tempted him to do what? Act in self-interest, save self. But every time the temptation came, Christ chose to love God and others more than self. No one can take my life, I give it freely. Thus in the human brain of Jesus Christ, the law of love destroyed the law of sin and death. 
And Christ became the second Adam. He restored mankind back to God's original design. And his resurrection was the inevitable outcome of restoring God's law perfectly. Because the law of the Lord is perfect, according to Psalms. And what does that law do? Revives the soul. Brings life to the soul. Reconnects you to the source of life. Thus, Christ rose again in the new humanity perfected by his achievements on earth. And thus, he becomes the source of salvation. So if you want an Ellen White quote for that, Desire of Ages 762, where she says the following. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give. But Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. Now, why does the law de- demand a perfect character? For the same reason the law of respiration demands you breathe. The law of respiration demands you breathe. Well, that's kind of restrictive. <laughs> It's exa- because that's how life is built to operate. You can't live outside that law. And God's law is the law of life. And this is why the law requires a righteous life, because it's the only way life is designed to operate. Deviations from that are destructive and result in death. You can put another Ellen White quote, First Selected Messages 235, which says, We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for a sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstance that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for him to transgress again, and the sure result is ruin and death. They separate themselves from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Or the wages of sin is death. Or sin when full grown brings forth death. Or he who sows to the carnal nature, from that nature reaps destruction. These are all scripture. This is design law, how things are designed to operate. Christ is our remedy. Partaking of him, we get a new heart and right spirit, new motives. The fear and insecurity is removed, and we come back to a complete trust relationship with God. And in that trust relationship, we open the heart. The spirit comes and takes what Christ achieved, and we become partakers of the divine nature. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is the power to live victorious. And it's only in a real love, trust relation with God that this is possible. This penal legal thing denies and cheats people out of victorious life. And they have the perpetual cycles of guilt and failure. Uh, perpetual cycles of feeling bad, shortcomings, confessing sin, working hard, but, but failing again, and confessing, confessing and repenting, confessing and repenting. Rather than taking the focus off self, and instead focusing on God and love for Him and love for others. Come, come to the seminar on the 21st. We'll go into more detail. Boy, let's see, let's see if we can get into some of the other stuff in Proverbs. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Proverbs 31 through 3 and 32 and 33. I am weary, God, but can I prevail? Surely I am only a brute, not a man. I have not human understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. If you play the fool and exalt yourself, or if you play an evil, clap your hands over your mouth. For as churning cream produces butter and twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. What, what lessons do you get from this? Do you all meditate on these? kind of con- What's the truth here? What's the meaning? Cause and effect. Uh, the, clearly, you can see this here. Design law is being described. Design law. Uh, if you churn cream, cause and effect. You get butter. If you punch somebody in the nose... If you stir up anger, this is cosmic design law. It's predictable. Life becomes predictable because God's laws are predictable. If I let go of this, how many of you think it will stay in the air and float? <laughs> See, the law of gravity is predictable. We can, we can know what's going to happen. Unless a divine intervention happens, an angel comes and somehow sustains it. 
but also that in our own strength we can't succeed, but we can succeed with God. Our natural selves, I think, are being described here. Our natural selves, our carnal nature, our brutes, survival of the fittest driven, seeking to get our own way without true understanding, without wisdom, without knowing God's way. That's our natural self. It's so natural to want to kill those ISIS people, isn't it? feels so right, doesn't it? It's brutish. It's beastly. It's not godly. It's not Christ-like. But where does an eye for an eye come in on that? Level two. This is, this is level one, punishment and reward. Level two, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. This is let's make a deal. This is not, this is not. Remember Jesus said, Matthew chapter five or six, where he said, you say an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I say, turn the other cheek. I say, if somebody wants your coat, uh, give him also your, if you want your shirt, give him your coat. I say, if somebody walks a mile, tear your bags for a mile, walk, take two miles. He took the eye for an eye for tooth for tooth and turned it on its head and said, no, that's retribution. My government does not, is not re- retributive. My government's the government of love, self-sacrificial. I give. And in so doing, we convict and convert. How does that work in a government setting? Ah, but see, now you're moving away from your individual responsibility to live a Christian life to governmental policies and governmental policies on earth. You can't do that, States don't operate on God's system. States operate on imposed law systems. States always coerce. That's why they're all in Scripture described as beasts. One day, they will work on God's system in an earth made new. Because? Things will be healed. Everyone will love everyone else more than self. That's right. Yes. So how do I reconcile what you're seeing there with healthy boundaries? Healthy boundaries in your individual life? With, yes, on the personal level, not the government level, but you're saying an eye for an eye, walk another mile, they ask for your coat. This is a great question, and it really has to do with judgment in that circumstance. You can't make a rule for every situation. Your goal would be, do I love this person, and what do I believe is most likely to help this person overcome selfishness in their heart? So like we talked earlier about the spouse who's beating you, just going along with that and, 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 and cowing down under it does not help the spouse who's beating you. But gently standing up and saying, I love you too much to allow you to destroy your own soul, and if you, want to get, if you don't get help, then I'm moving out. That is a much greater act of love than simply staying in there. And if you look at the people who generally stay in abusive relationships, they're not generally staying because of love. They're staying because of fear. They're afraid to be on their own. They're afraid to be alone. They're afraid of abandonment. They're afraid they won't be able to pay their bills. They're afraid their kids won't have medical bills paid. They're afraid. It's almost always fear. It's rarely ever staying in an abusive situation based on love. Even though they tell themselves, well, I love him. And the Bible says you shouldn't divorce except for in case of adultery. And as far as I know, he's never had sex with anybody else. Because they don't understand what adultery is. Adultery is betrayal. So the Bible says you break the law in one point, you break the law in all points because the law is the law of love. And to beat one spouse, you are failing to love them. You're exploiting them. You're abusing them. You're destroying your own soul. You're destroying the relationship God's designed for marriage. Everything's being broken by this. So the one who has wisdom and insight will stand up in a gentle way and say, I can't go along with this. This is out of, out of harmony with God's design, and I'm not going to live out there. And so what I teach my patients, I try to tell them, philosophically, framework of orientation, understand design law. You see, a doctor can't get patients well outside the laws of health. You cannot be healthy if you're outside God's design. You can't have a healthy relationship outside God's design. Only in harmony with how it's constructed to work. Same thing if you go to your cars. Your cars will not run if you put water in the gas tank. It's not designed 
to run on water. You break the design, the system breaks down. Understanding design law, philosophically changed. Many people don't want that. It's too much thinking. But they'd rather just say, well, here's the list of rules. And if I do all the rules, I, I, I make sure the TV's off by sunset on Friday. I make sure I pay my pre-tax tithe. I make sure I don't eat any cheese or meat. I make sure, to, you know, and I, I got my list of rules and I do all my rules and everything's going to turn out right. Life doesn't turn out right keeping a list of rules because you can't have a rule for every circumstance. But when you understand design law, then in that circumstance you can say, what's the most healthy action for me to take in this setting to be a blessing to this person? And sometimes it might be carrying the thing for an extra mile. Sometimes it might be saying, I'm sorry, you know, you need to learn to carry this yourself. I have a patient, I'll close with a story, and I recommend people go to the notes. There's a lot of stuff we did with Proverbs that are in the notes. But I had a patient who uh, I was consulted to see on a... Uh, on nephrology ward, this person was in renal failure, been in renal failure for years, because she'd regressed into severe depression. And when I went in to see her, she was so re- regressed that she really couldn't do any activities of daily living at all. Couldn't brush her teeth or go to the bathroom or anything on her own. She was that regressed into depression. And um, she had m- multiple family members just hovering over her, attending to every little need that she had. And so I knew immediately I had to switch, transfer to my psych ward, which was a locked ward, so I could do a family ectomy. <laughs> I had to excise her family away from her. And when she came into our ward, first hour on the ward, she's in a hospital bed, there's a hospital table next to her, on the hospital table are her glasses, and the nurse call light goes off, and we go into the room, and she goes, will you put my glasses on my face? And that sounds very reasonable. It sounds like, well, what, 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 what hard-hearted person wouldn't do that? I mean, if you're compassionate, you're going to help this person, right? Oh, certainly. But you, if you looked and observed, you were observant, you'd realize that she had to reach over her glasses to get to the call button. <laughs> you follow me on this? Okay? And so, no, we didn't put our glasses on her face. We required her to do everything that she was capable of doing for herself. We would not do it for her. By the end of the week, she was up working the kitchen, helping set the tables, helping clean the tables, and, and just, just really doing great. Okay? It was not an act of love to carry this woman's glasses or burdens for her. It was destructive. We have to have wisdom. So carrying a burden an extra mile for some people would be, would be damaging. You can't have a rule for every circumstance. You have to have wisdom to understand what's going on in this particular setting and take an action designed to, be, to restore that person to the wholeness as far as possible. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Yes, enabling is what that would have been, yes. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of love and you have designed your universe to operate in harmony with your own character, truth, love, freedom. Help our minds break out of the rut of seeing everything through this lens of human construct, imperialistic, imposed law things that that just prevent us from from partaking of the, the power of your gospel and the power of your presence. We ask for your spirit to come not only enlighten our minds, but to transform us with new motives to be partakers of the divine nature, that we can live the life of victory, live the life of love over the fear and insecurity in our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen.